Welcome to the newest Eden Center podcast, Building Ourselves Through Parsha. Our host, Karen Miller-Jackson, will use the Parsha to explore an aspect of social, emotional, or physical well-being relevant for 21st century life and its challenges. Karen is a certified Matan Moralalacha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kivun Lashirut, a guidance program for religious girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Consistent with the Eden Center's goal of enhancing women's spiritual life through Torah and Mikvah, Karen's insights, we hope, will serve as a springboard for self-introspection and discussion. Hello, everyone. Last week's Parsha highlighted some of the ups and downs in Yaakov's life as he began to establish a home and family. The next few Parshio contain descriptions of conflict between his children and later reconciliation. This week's Parsha, Vayishlach, contains what must have been one of the darkest and most upsetting incidents for Yaakov as a parent, the taking and rape of Dina by Shechem. While it is difficult to read and study, the inclusion of this account of violence against Dina in the Torah provides an opportunity to pause and raise awareness about domestic violence and sexual abuse of women. This is particularly relevant now, as last week marked the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and because we have seen a significant rise of abuse cases during this pandemic. To enrich this week's podcast, after sharing a few insights into the Parsha, I will interview Debbie Gross, the founder and director of Tahel, Crisis Center for Religious Women and Children, who is truly doing avodat kodesh for victims of domestic and sexual abuse in Israel. Now let's return to the Parsha. Dina is the only daughter of Yaakov mentioned in the Torah. Other than her birth, we hear about Dina for the first time when tragedy strikes in Bereshit chapter 34. The narrative begins when Dina goes out to see the women of the area. Now Dina, the daughter whom Leah had born to Yaakov, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Immediately following this, we read, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Chivi, chief of the country, saw her and took her, and v'ya'aneha. The language in the verse sounds clearly as though Dina is taken against her will and violated. Some commentaries interpret the word v'ya'aneha as debasement, but there is ample support to interpret it as sexual violence. First, the same word is used in the story of David HaMelech's children, Amnon and Tamar in Shmuel Bet, which clearly echoes the narrative of Dina and Shechem. There, it states... But he would not listen to her. Amnon overpowered her and lay with her by force. Here it is clear Tamar did not consent, and Amnon forces her using this same word, v'ya'aneha. In the story of Amnon and Tamar, we hear Tamar's voice begging her brother not to force her, whereas in the Dina story, she is silent. The Ramban interprets the word Vayaneha in the Dina story as forcing her and views Dina's lack of consent as very clear from the text. He writes, the Torah tells us that she was forced and she did not consent to the prince of the country. This is to her praise. The Ramban provides a voice of clarity on this subject. A woman should never feel silenced nor forced in a relationship. By verbalizing this, we can teach those around us the importance of this message. 
Another aspect of this narrative relates to the topic of blame of abuse victims. When terrible things happen to the Avot and their families in Sefer Bereshit, the commentaries search for a reason or for someone to blame. One source of blame is Yaakov. When Yaakov meets his brother Esav in the beginning of Vaishlach, the Torah states that Yaakov brought his 11 children with him. Rashi asks, where was Dina? Remember that Benjamin was not yet born. Rashi explains that Yaakov had hidden her in a teva, a box, out of concern that Esav would see her and want her as a wife. According to Rashi, Dina had the potential to bring Esav to do tshuva, and Yaakov prevented this from happening. According to this difficult midrash, Dina is later raped by Shechem as a punishment for Yaakov's hiding her from Esav. Another potential source of blame was Dina herself, even though we hear so little about her. Rashi says that Dina was a yatsanit. She liked to go out. This is sometimes interpreted as blaming Dina. However, some commentaries reject this view. The Abarbanel explains that she was the only girl in her family and was lonely, so she went out for some companionship, specifically with other girls. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that being a yatsanit was actually a positive attribute in Dina and that Rashi is saying Dina was justified and doing good in her going out since she had the potential to positively influence others. These sources highlight, on the one hand, the human need to search for reasons when bad things happen, and also to look for someone to blame. Yet, these commentaries also demonstrate the dangers of going down this route. Blaming the victim only further stigmatizes abuse and makes it harder for victims to speak up. Ramban and other commentaries say that this story teaches the praise of Dina, in that she remained true to her values as a daughter of Israel. Dina is also to be praised for giving us the opportunity to use her story to raise awareness about abuse and to talk to our children about healthy relationships. Shabbat Shalom. Today, Karen interviews Debbie Gross, the founder and director of the Tehel Crisis Center for Religious Women and Children, which services women and children around Israel and internationally, helping Jewish communities prevent sexual and domestic abuse. Debbie has really been a friend of the Eden Center for over 10 years, training mikveh attendants and college teachers as part of our work to raise awareness, increase prevention, and reach out to women in abusive relationships. When we originally turned to Debbie, we did so because of her special expertise in training rabbis and community leaders on how to intervene and make referrals in cases of domestic violence and sexual abuse. Debbie has also developed amazing educational workshops, giving children and teens the skills to recognize and prevent sexual abuse and domestic violence. This year, her incredible work was recognized when she was awarded the Nefesh Benefesh Bonet Sion Prize. Her partnership in helping to make mikvah a safe place in terms of detection of abuse, as well as how to refer for help and find the right resources, and making the mikvah safe for them post-abuse, is all part of Eden's work and why we are so honored to have her speak with Karen here about domestic and sexual abuse. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. The work you are doing at Tahel is always important, but especially these days. The emotional and financial stress of coronavirus has led to a significant rise in the cases of domestic and sexual abuse here in Israel and likely abroad. Could you give us a sense of what you are seeing in the Shetach, in the field, and how bad is it? Okay, during the first lockdown, um, we were overwhelmed with calls. 
what happened is we had to close our offices and then within 24 hours we regrouped and moved it so that it was a Kova Harai so people could get the phone calls in their house and we were working 24-7. We got 557 calls in the first six weeks, which is a 300% rise as compared to the year before. And basically what we found is that people were overwhelmed um, by being trapped, by not being able to go outside. We had three types of calls. We had people who had been abused in the past, either sexually abused or domestic violence, and being locked in brought up and re-traumatized them. The second calls we got is that people who had never been battered in the past and were being battered now. An example was a woman whose husband maybe had been um, emotionally abusive, but never physically abusive because he had found ways to deal with his anger. He would go out, he would go for a ride, he would go running, he had a network out there. And when he was locked in the house, he actually hit her and this was this type of call came often also. And the third type of call we got is that people who were forced to be in a lockdown with their abusers. In other words, teenage girls whose brothers had abused them in the past, but were now in yeshiva and were brought home from yeshiva. Or women who had been um, abused by other people who came back and lived at home. So we had three different types of cases. And we felt that people really needed help. They just didn't know where to get help and what to do. Wow. Wow. And as and now with the second lockdown and as the time progressed, has it remained the same? Has it gone up? Has it diminished? Yeah, so we have not we have not seen a diminishing in the violence. The first thing we did was provide 24-7 service, but then right away we opened up support groups on Zoom. And I don't know about you, but Zoom has become my new best friend. Yeah. I was very hesitant about opening up a support group on Zoom, but we had no choice. Yeah. And what we found is that people felt safer coming to a group on Zoom. Yeah. In addition, we gave workshops out there via Zoom, whether it was meditation workshops or how to keep yourself calm or how to build resilience. And right now what we're doing is we just finished training our volunteers. We're opening up a WhatsApp hotline. Because what happened in the lockdowns taught us that women maybe couldn't talk on the phone, but they could write. And so therefore the need of a WhatsApp line. So what we're seeing is as a result of the corona, we need different ways of helping people, but we're also seeing that the stress is exasperating violence against women and children, which is no surprise. If you look throughout history, mm -hmm. anytime there is stress on society, or violence in society, we see a rise in the increase of violence of women and children. My goodness, and it is just incredible. And it's amazing that you've been able to adapt and be of even greater help through this period, incredible. My next question for you is sort of two parts. Um, in my Vartora, I talk about the tragic rape of Dina. Uh, I'd like to use this as a springboard to talk about some of the statistics associated with abuse, abuse and also some guidance, potential guidance. Dina is abused by someone she only just encounters. In general, do most cases of sexual abuse occur with someone familiar or with someone who the victim doesn't necessarily know so well? Uh, the second question is, um, 
as a reaction, Yaakov and his children take on different forms of reacting, and some of them are more violent and some are more passive. What are helpful ways for people to react to abuse? Okay, so first of all, um, if we're talking about who is the perpetrator, who is the abuser, when we're talking about sexual abuse of children, 90% of the time, it's someone the child knows. And I think there's a reason for that. The reason is that you and I did a good job. Over the past 20 years, we have taught the concept of stranger danger, stranger danger. You don't go with a stranger, you don't open the door, and kids got it. And that's why it's much harder for a stranger to be, get into children. And therefore, the perpetrators are usually someone the child knows, usually someone child trusts enough to at least open the door, to get in the car, to stop and give information. When we're talking about women, again, most of the time, it's someone they know, because women do protect themselves from strangers. Um, how well they know them, it depends on if we're talking about young adults or teenagers, a lot of the dating is in, a lot of the violence is in the dating scene. So if they're going to a pub or they're on a first date or if they're meeting on an app and then meeting in a pub, do you say they know each other or they don't? Well, they're not strangers, let's put it that way. And they feel safe enough to have a drink with that person, which whether that's smart or not smart isn't the question. So yes, most of the time it is not the stranger. And I think none of us really take that in because I go all around the world giving lectures. And when I have to walk back to my hotel, you know, I have all my safety skills and I look around me, but actually I am more at risk getting into a car with my friend's husband than I am walking back to my hotel. And yet none of us feel that fear. So yes, we have to understand usually the abuser is someone we know. As far as how a community should react, um, there's two parts. The first part is how do we react to somebody who's been abused? And that has to be with empathy, with understanding and with belief. And we have to believe the victims as they come forward. If later on it's proven not true, we can deal with that. But our community reaction is usually we will criticize the victim or not believe her because this makes our status quo stay in place. But more important to how we react to the views, how we react to the victims is we should be building prevention programs in our community. We aren't doing that. Um, we do a lot of workshops and training to train teachers to give workshops in the schools. But ask yourself, has your child gotten a workshop this year? The answer is no. In other words, we have to build communities where there's more awareness. We have to have on every pulpit rabbis speaking out on rabbis or any clergy speaking out against this. So our community, we have to in every workplace make sure there's a trained work train monitor to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. There's so much our community can do to prevent abuse that isn't being put in place. Um, a lot of it is a problem of funding, where the funding just isn't going to the right places. So, um, you know, as you know, as, as, as the lockdown started, less and less funding went to helping victims and to helping um, amutot NGOs versus where it should have been going, it wasn't going. So these are all things, but um, Certainly reacting in a community and preventing in a community is crucial to helping victims. Right, wow. Uh, and now, so, so we talked a little bit about the communal level. Uh, within individual families, friendships, relationships, 
Let's talk about maybe some practical advice, like you mentioned, preventatively as well. Um, what would be, what are signs of abuse that we could be looking for among friends and family? And if we have concerns, how, how can people help? Okay. So first of all, if you have any concerns and you're not sure, before you reach out, call to help. Mm -hmm. Call us and say, does this sound like abuse to you? So that we can really help you go back and, and talk to your friend. But what are the signs? The biggest sign is a change. If you see changes in your friends, in your kids, in your family members, in your neighbors, that should light up a light. Mm -hmm. If you see somebody um, withdrawing, she's not going out, she's not getting together with friends, somebody who is no longer showing up at places, somebody who isn't part of the group anymore, this should be a red light. Certainly we're all aware if we hear, see somebody raise a hand, we're not talking about that. Mm -hmm. But if you see somebody talk demeaning to somebody you know, then reach out. Now, um, recent studies have shown so many people just are waiting for someone to ask one question. Are you okay? Now, we into hell have developed a program. We call it Just Ask. It's a five-step program. We call it PAL-ER, Be a Friend in the Time of Emergency. And the, um, the five-step program is plan, ask, listen, encourage, and reconnect. PAL-ER. And what we're talking about is first plan what you're going to say. Note what you notice. Write it down. And then ask her. Just say, I've noticed this, and I've noticed this. And I just want to ask, are you okay? And that's a much easier way for the person to respond. The third thing is listen. And listen means actually listening. Don't interrupt. Don't tell them what to do. The fourth step is encourage. Encourage them to get help. If you don't know where they can get help, you can call Tahel 24-7. We will give you the resources or refer them to Tahel. And then the fifth step is reconnect. After you've reached out, call her. How are you doing? I'm just checking in on you. And if we follow this just ask concept, we can find a better way to reach out to victims who may need our help. Wow, this was incredible. This was incredibly helpful. I am so grateful. On the one hand, it's such a hard topic to discuss and think about, but it is so important to raise awareness and I feel hopeful speaking to you. Uh, so please uh, keep up strength to do your incredible work and, and really thank you so, so much and Shabbat Shalom. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is recorded by Karen Miller-Jackson, edited by Mecca Shore, and is a product of the Edit Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback by email at podcasts at theedincenter.com.